Bongiorno. Hey, everybody. This is Fried Squirms. I'm Tyler. I'm Danny. And this week, we're getting back to some Gialli, which explains my bad Italian. <laughs> but before that, we're here to get stoned to talk about horror movies. That's what we're here to do. And yeah, Strange Vice of Mrs. Ward. If you looked at the title of the episode and didn't just let it autoplay, <laughs> you probably already know that. But first, we have to get to our green hints. Now I kind of remember what I'm doing. Danny, what am I smoking today? Awesome. So no big surprise here. I stopped by Flower on the way over. And with that, I picked up a very popular strain, actually a strain that you've mentioned several times as being possibly and arguably your favorite. So I brought over Ooh. the Montana Silver Tip. Ooh. For those who need a refresher, as if we didn't already talk about this a million times, the genetics on this, even though the breeders are unknown, the genetics include a cross between Granddaddy Purple and Super Silver Haze. The result is a sativa dominant bud, right? So this one, it's checked out somewhere in the 20% THC range. The one over at Flower comes in at 26%. It is known for its notes of skunk, pine, and diesel with a touch of blueberry. That works to sweeten everything up in just the right way. So the typical effects that you'll feel are focused, relaxed, and social. And the common usage is for depression, pain, and nausea. So this week for you, I also went to Flower. But they had a strain I hadn't seen them have before. Hey, you. So this week I brought you some Euphoria. Ooh. Now, Euphoria... Also known as euphoria spelled with just an F, not the normal PH. Gotcha. There's no like super mapped out lineage. It was bred in the early 2000s from skunk strains. I'm okay with That's that. That's it. I like skunk. That's all we got is that it's some Amsterdam skunks because it was bred by the Amsterdam Dutch Passion Seed Company. Okay. As soon as it came out in the early 2000s, it started winning some awards. And in 2000, it took second place in the sativa category. 2002, it won the Best Seeds High Life Cup. Nice. So it's some award-winning sativa coming your way, mostly sativa. It is a little bit more sweet and floral than your average skunk, and it's supposed to be a more upbeat social high. Though if you are one that gets anxiety from weed rather than it helping with your anxiety supposed to be maybe not the best strain to go with but otherwise it's supposed to promote a sense of well-being so hopefully you feel well danny <laughs> very well tyler uh, let's see to go along with that we just want to say you know go check out our patreon patreon.com slash fried squirms sign up for our shit you know get Episodes a week early, as long as I get back on my shit. Uh, <laughs> all that good stuff. Like we said, at the highest level, there's a Discord. You guys could be chatting with us right now. Exactly. We'd love to hear from you. We'll tell you when we're recording. You guys can throw questions our way. Exactly. We'll answer them. We'll be like, yeah, no, fucking, we definitely think we could take Chucky on. Yeah, no, I will bust fucking Clint Howard in the face if I need to. These are things we've talked about before. But, yeah, that would be awesome. We highly appreciate it. But with all that said, we have a movie to talk about today. 
So let's get beyond our green hats and get into the guts and bolts of the strange vice of Mrs. Ward. Guts and bolts. All right, guts and bolts, strange vice of Mrs. Ward, who and what went into the making of this movie, spoiler-free, to give you all a setup in case you don't know what the fuck this flick is about. Mrs. Ward, spelled with an H, which makes that name look way weirder. Anyway, Mrs. Ward moves back to Vienna with her diplomat husband after spending some time in New York City during a time in which the city is under attack. (laughs) There's a serial killer going about killing people with a straight razor. And she starts to realize that maybe she has a connection to it. And maybe she's next. Hmm. That works, right? That's close enough. I think so. I don't know how much she's really threatened by it at first until she realizes, but we can get into that later on. Right. But for spoiler-free sake, I think that's a a really good setup of what this woman tells. Oh, also, I guess this is set up really quick at the beginning and is actually what she's worried about for the first half of the movie. An abusive ex is also about. Precisely. (laughs) All right. So from week to week, we do like to talk about the cast and the crew of our films. And this week... As a director, I'm glad we're finally getting to talk about one of my favorite in this genre, subgenre that is. But this week, director Sergio Martino is a gentleman we're talking about. A few films of note from this gentleman. I actually own a few of these films, but he's done such films as The Case of the Scorpion's Tail. He's also known for Your Vice as a Locked Room in Only I Have the Key the film All the Colors of the Dark and Torso, which, of course, all of these films are in the giallo subgenre. I guess I didn't realize Martino did Torso. Yeah. Pretty much all those films are heralded, like Mm -hmm. I said, in the subgenre. All right, he did some action films such as The Visitor, Gambling City, Silent Action. He's also done such things as The Suspicious Death of a Minor, which is a film I still haven't watched, but I'm really curious about. He's done some sexy movies, stuff like Sex with the Smiles 1 and 2. He's also known for The Scorpion with Two Tails. I mean, he's done comedies. He's done some other stuff, you know, outside of, of genre. But um, he kind of helped spark this Italian thriller movement, like I said, which is known as the uh, giallo subgenre. Okay, so along with um, Mr. Martino, we have writers Eduardo M. Brochero. Ernesto Gastaldi and Vittorio Coronia. Now, I'll start with Eduardo Brochero. Now, this gentleman's also known. He goes by um, Eduardo Manzanos, or he did, mm-hmm. because that's his middle name. But a few films of note from him. He's got some actually really curious ones. I think most notably, if you go back in the 60s, such things as 1968 Satanic. He also helped on such things as Death on High Mountain. He's worked on the films The Case of the Scorpion's Tell, The Mass Thief, Night of the Devils. He also helped on Hitler's Last Train from 1977. I did mention Ernesto Gastaldi. Now, Ernesto, he's got some really cool films, too, underneath his belt. If you go back in the 60s, you can start with, I don't know, such things as The Whip in the Body, which was a Mario Bava film, Mm, which is really cool. He also helped in The Vampire of the Opera, films uh hercules and the masked writer these are from back in the 60s uh the film libido not to be confused with ellis for libido yeah i know god 
<laughs> Not too bad, though. <laughs> he also helped on uh, Torso as well. Yeah, you know, the film Gambling City. Well, I see that he also worked on Arizona Colt, yeah. which is one of the uh, few spaghetti westerns that Martino worked on. Exactly, dude. It was really cool. He also helped on The Suspicious Death of a Minor in the film Once Upon a Time in America back in 1984, which is really mm. neat. Yeah. All right. Moving forward, we have cinematographer Emilio Forrescott. Now, Emilio... Another gentleman's got some really cool films underneath his filmography. But uh, a few things of note, if you go back in the 60s, once again, one of those guys got such uh, films as Only a Coffin. He's also known for Frankenstein's Bloody Terror. That was back in 1968. Once you get back in the 70s, you start seeing such things as Run for Your Life. He helped with this case of The Scorpion's Tale, The Mass Thief. He also helped on Hitler's Last Train in 1980's Cannibal Terror. All right, we have editor Eugenio Alabiso. Now, Eugenio, another one of those guys, got some really interesting films underneath his belt. If you look at the Western genre in particular, he's known for, for A Few Dollars More and The Good, Ooh. The Bad, and The Ugly, Ooh. right? Also 1968's Django, Prepare a Coffin. Okay. Really interesting oh, there. Okay. I'm trying to remember which one Django Prepare Coffin is. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Yeah, I can tell you. <laughs> There's so many Django sequels. <laughs> now, no surprise, he also helped with The Case of the Scorpion's Tell. 1971's film, The Fifth Court, I heard is really good as well. We have The Case of the Bloody Iris, which is actually or arguably maybe the first Giallo I've ever seen. Mm, okay. You know, like an official Giallo. All right. He's also known for the film Spasmo from 1974. He's also helped uh, on the film The Beast, The Manhunt, The Scorpion with Two Tails, Tony, another double game. So some really interesting films in the genre as well. All right. We have music composed by Nora Orlandi, and she actually is known for her work Dies Ira, which is a short piece she wrote for this film, and it was later reused by none other than Quentin Tarantino in Kill Bill Volume 2, yes. which is really interesting. Now, a few films of note from Nora. She worked on the films Johnny Yuma, $10,000 for Massacre, The Sweet Body of Deborah, $100,000 for Killing, and Double Face from 1969. All right, this was produced by Luciano Martino and Antonio Crescenzi. Production companies were Devon Film and Cooper Cines, Cooperativa Cinematografica. The distributor was Interfilm for the 1971 theatrical release in Italy, and the release date was January 15th, 1971 in Italy. So this film is almost 51 years old. That is fucking bonkers, dude. All right, so moving into our cast. I'm going to lead off with an actress I'm really glad we're talking about. This is um, actress Edwidge Fennec. And for those who don't know, she is arguably like the queen of this subgenre. Mm -hmm. Like one of the, uh, along with probably Barbara Boucher. But a few films to note from her. This is going to lead into some interesting trivia a little bit later on. But she was in a film called Madame Bovary which was actually a German production film. Now, I think we've talked about this briefly, like during this time period, 60s and 70s in particular, if you worked on a production, it was usually like, I don't know, in the hands of other countries too, like 
we worked in Spain, there was probably a French company or a German company mm, mm-hmm. that was also on board. Same thing with Italians. They usually worked with Spanish and French and German. So, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So you had all these hands on deck from different countries. So hence why you see all these different names and whatnot. But anyhow, it was because of her work on that film that helped her get work on this film. And because of that, you started is seeing her. Is this pretty early for her? Oh, yeah. This okay. is... I mean, she had did some, like, small parts really early on. I mean, she basically got her start when she was, like, 17, 18, 19, something okay. like that. But most notably, she got a role in Mario Bava's Five Dolls for an August Moon back in 1970, which is a film I highly recommend. It's really awesome. After this film, she went on to do such things as All the Colors of the Dark. I already mentioned The Case of the Bloody Iris, which I think is the first film I'd seen her in. We should also mention we almost did All the Colors of the Dark. Yeah, which you just <laughs> literally just brought up, which is funny. All right, now, she also was in, uh, coincidentally, Your Vice is a Locked Room and Only I Have the Key. She went on to do some sexy movies, too, such things as Naughty Nun. She was also in Ubalda, All Naked and Warm. She was also in Giovanona, Long Thigh, stuff like that. She also went on to do such things as 1975, Strip Nude for Your Killer, mm. one I'd highly recommend checking out. Like I said, she did a lot of comedies. She went on to do some television series. Now, interestingly enough, we've actually talked about him before. I'm talking about Eli Roth because he pulled her in for Hostel Part 2 as an art class professor. After we watch Hostel 2 because I do not remember an art class. Yeah, (laughs) I I know because I remember – shit, it was probably not too long after I started getting into this style of – you know, like Giallos Mm -hmm. and whatnot – that when Hostel 2 came out, and I'd read about that, and I was like, oh, shit, let me see if I can spot her. And then I was like, oh, okay, yeah, 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 there she is. Is it pretty, it's, o- yeah, pretty it's obvious? Yeah, pretty obvious after you know this. All right, moving forward, we have George Hilton. Well, Ooh. actually, I have to mention, she plays Julie Ward. Oh, okay. All right. So I'd say of the two of us, I'm a little bit more the Spaghetti Western guy. Yeah, yeah. George Hilton's sure. mostly known for Spaghetti Westerns. True. And I think the two big things is he is the last Sartana. That's awesome. Which, like, Sartan is a huge name as far as, like, heroes of spaghetti westerns go. I can't remember if he got a bunch of unofficial spinoffs like Django did. But there's a Sartana trilogy, at least, that people are like, ooh, Sartana. And he was in the third one after the original guy stepped down after the second. Interesting. But then he also went on to be his own hero named Hallelujah. Yeah, (laughs) that's pretty awesome. Now, I wanted to bring that up mostly because... The film that's normally entitled They Call Me Hallelujah, its original Italian name is fucking hilarious. At least to me. Okay. It's, I'm not going to butcher the Italian. No, you, you can go for it. It uh, translates to Heads I Kill You, Tails You're Dead, They Call Me Hallelujah. <laughs> Damn. I, yeah. Italians had a way of just saying what they meant. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's pretty funny. So, I did want to mention because I did watch some of the behind the scenes feature that came along with the DVD of this film, mm-hmm. but which you can read also on the Wikipedia page for him, his entry point and arguably like a really launching pad for his career is when he was uh, in Lucio Fulci's Western Massacre Time back in 1966. Now he was in it with uh, Franco Nero. And uh, there's one other, one other gentleman also too. Is like kind of like a well-known 
spaghetti western actor at the time so mm-hmm. yeah from there of course like I said he went on to do a lot of films with Martino just a few things of note I wanted to mention with him is uh, he was in All the Colors of the Dark he was also in The Case of the Bloody Iris he was in Seven Hours of Violence you might have seen him in The Killer Must Kill Again he was also in such things as Double Game he was also in uh, let's see here a bunch of 80s films Dinner with a Vampire which actually was a TV series really interesting and um, I, I suppose 1997's fireworks, but yeah, he passed away not too long ago, a uh, couple I years ago. That, yeah. yeah, unfortunately, but yeah, really interesting things. I'll bring up a little bit later on his whole connection with these guys. All right, he did play Django in one of the unofficial sequels. Yeah, I saw that man. He's been in some really interesting westerns. Like I said before, he got into thrillers here with giallos and whatnot. Well, and also funnily, he played not Django or Alleluia in a movie called. Hallelujah for Django. Dang. <laughs> I need the one in this one. He plays Rum Cooney in that. Yeah, he was pulling fucking John Cena shit. All right, we have uh, Christina Conchita Eroldi. She plays the role of Carol Brandt. The only other film really of note from her, she was in Torso, mm. but she's more well-known as a producer. I was going to say, she's more behind the scenes, right? Yeah, like she you know, like did a few things here and there in film, but... Most notably in production side. All right. We have Ivan Razumov. He plays the role of Jean or Jean in this film. Now, this gentleman, he's got some really cool films. If you go back, he was in Mario Bava's Planet of the Vampires. He was also in Your Vice as a Locked Room and Only I Have the Key. He was in Umberto Lenzi's, another guy I really like. I uh, enjoy some of his films, but he was a man from Deep River. He's also in Eaten Alive back Holy in the 1980s. Holy shit, he was in Eaten Alive. Yo, he was in the eerie midnight horror show in Ruggiero Diodato's Last Cannibal World. Now, if I'm not mistaken, he was also in All the Colors of the Dark. Yep, there it is right there. He was also in Spasmo. He was also in Emmanuel in Bangkok, Last Cannibal World. 1977's Shock, which is another Mario Bava film. Those uh, Emmanuel films are actually Joe D'Amato films, which Joe D'Amato, interesting guy nonetheless. But anyhow, really interesting actor. All right. We have Alberto de Mendoza. He plays the role of Neil Ward. Another one of those guys got a really lot of really cool films, but I think most notably after he was in this film, he was in A Lizard and a Woman Skin, which is a Lucio Filci oh. film. He was in the case of the Scorpion's Tale. He was in a really, really interesting film because of the people that were in it. But he was in a 1972 film entitled Horror Express, which starred Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, Telly Savalas. Damn. Yeah. Why so, haven't we watched Horror Express yet? <laughs> got some really interesting people, right? So uh, some really cool shit Telly there, Telly Savalas with Lee and Cushing? Yeah, dude. He was in Bossa Nova back in 2000. And I looked it up to 2003 film Cleopatra. It's not what you think it is. I think it's more of a comedy than anything. But, um, yeah, a few things of note there. All right, we have a few other gentlemen, and that pretty much runs out our cast and crew. We have Manuel Gill. He plays the role of Dr. Arbe. A few things of note from him. He was in College Boarding House and a film called Codename Jaguar. We have Carlo Alighiero. He plays the role of the commissioner in the film. Okay. Yeah. A few things of note from him. He was in Dario Argento's The Cat Nine Tells. He was in Martino's Torso and also The Suspicious Death of a Minor. And last but not least, we have Bruno Corazari plays the role of the Razor Killer. 
And uh, this guy, like I said, he's got an extensive film career. It's just a few things of note from him. He was in Once Upon a Time in the West back in 1968. He was in, let's see here, Seven Bloodstained Orchids, which is a part of that giallo box that I was telling you I have. Another one of those films, pretty decent, not too mm-hmm. bad. He was in the 1975 film The Suspect. He was also in uh, such things as Thunder Warrior, The Green Inferno from 1988, mm. not to be mistaken with uh, Mr. Ross' film we just right. talked about. Yeah, it was really interesting. And, um, yeah, pretty much, like I said, rounds out our cast and crew. You gave us a brief setup. We should give you some warnings. Head into the next section. Warnings. Since it's been a while, we'll talk about giallos a little bit more coming up in the next section. But you should know this is basically a slasher movie. <laughs> so proto, proto slasher, yeah. Mm-hmm. So think of like most of the warnings that would come with that: violence, blood, boobs. Yes. <laughs> yep. What else? Is there a little bit of language? I mean, it's all. Yeah, I mean, here and there, if it's you know. No, no big deal, but yeah. I want to say there's probably not much any worse than, like, Bastard, to be honest, but... Yeah, if that... I'm trying to think. Mm, I mean, there's some sexy stuff. I was about to say, I, we just said boobs, but there's, like, lots of sexy stuff through the movie. So. Yeah, there's some sexy stuff in this movie. There's some misogyny and things like that. Um, if there is anything major that we miss for whatever reason, of course, we always talk about it before we get to it. Right. So, I don't think we missed anything, though. No, I think that pretty much covers our basis for this one. I guess let's get into talking about how the strange vice of Mrs. Ward made us squeal. (laughs) How does that make you squeal? Alright, strange vice of Mrs. Ward. You know, normally we start off with our histories with this. Spoiler alert, my first time watching it. But... Because it's arguably been a while since we've talked about a giallo, we brought them up during Malignant because of the influence. Yeah, we can't help but notice that. Maybe we should talk about the genre for a second, just in case people don't know what the fuck we're talking about when we say, well, we watched a horror movie, but it's a giallo. Like, what the hell are you talking about? Who the hell was eating jello? <laughs> yeah. I'm like, no, not jello. <laughs> I mean, they're almost all have a, like a touch of horror, right? Yeah, I mean, there's horror elements, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We already talked about, like, the proto-slasher. Mm-hmm. Out of Italy, mainly 70s through 80s. Of course, there's even modern-day giallos. But right, right. if we're talking heyday... Yeah, most notably 70s. Early 70s. Yeah, all the way into the 80s. A little bit more of mystery style. Tend to lean more into the crime side. Name giallos because the first giallos were adaptations of pulp crime novels that were printed on yellow paper. Hence the name Giallo, which means Means, yellow. mm -hmm. Yeah. So in a way, you can think of it as like the Italian side of like what grew out of pulp. Yeah. Over in America, like Grindhouse grew out of pulp. In Italy, this grew out of pulp. Yeah, this is a prime example. Just a, a different side of the pulp coin. Yeah. That's a good way of looking at it. Yeah, proto-slashers in a lot of ways. Like, I feel like like giallos maybe lean heavier into their tropes than some of the other genres, because there are some very specific tropes associated with giallos. Oh, yeah. And they're, like, almost across the board fit into at least, like, most of them. 
You know what I mean? Like no, there's there's no denying certain how many how many giallo killers use some sort of knife weapon mm-hmm. with black gloves, a leather jacket, and usually some sort of mask. During yeah. which ninety percent of the movie you only see their hands. I mean that's shit. <laughs> that's about ninety percent of the fucking films you're gonna see in this subgenre. <laughs> Almost always targeting a young woman tormenting her both physically and mentally. Yes, absolutely. Probably 70% of the time, boobs and sexy, sexy times are involved. I was like, yeah, sucky, sucky too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yes. I don't want to say 100% of the time on but that no, no, one, because no, that say, one backs off a little bit more, I'd say. but Yeah, but there's a good chance you're going to see some, some nice-looking ladies. The soundtrack is going to be incredibly important. Oh, yeah. As well as the color. Yeah, sound design, the set design, all of that stuff is very, very crucial. And the lighting, mm-hmm. yeah, color palette, you know, stuff like that. It's very stylized. With uh, a film style that tends to show off the scenery just as much as the action. Although not to the point where I would call it like something like scenery porn like Midsummer is. Solid point, yeah. It's just... Sometimes it's just a matter of fact. Like, we'll get into the, all the specifics, but yeah, that's a good way of looking at that, too. And then, boom, you got yourself a giallo. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> hell yeah. Just make it like a murder mystery and you're good to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, in a. There are slashers way, that just aren't structured the way that we think of slashers. Right, being structured. right. It, I think that's more the, like a, um, the American approach, you know. Mm-hmm. That's probably where it deviates from the Italian, European style. Proto slasher, that's where they deviate for sure. Oh, and if the cops are involved, they're incompetent. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's I mean, that's consistent. kind of across the board with that's, horror, that's but consistent, yeah. Regardless, <laughs> but you know what I mean. Yeah, they they're no better in this scenario either. Yeah. So now we'll get into this. Like I said, I've never seen it before. I want to say prior to this weekend. I had seen it maybe twice total. Okay. Right. And it had been a while since I've watched this particular one. I had seen All the Colors of the Dark and Five Dollars for an August Moon more recently. I mean, because both of those are Edwick. But yeah, as far as this one, it's been a while, dude. I want to say probably late 2000s. Mm. I'm going to be honest. Yeah. So it's been at least that long. Dang. Since you had seen it before, though, now going back to it, how does it hold up? For me, because of the way that we do these films, I think having the patience to see how this film unfolds and then having the advantage also the second time going back through and trying to look for those little clues and shit Ooh. like that, I think it holds up a lot better than I anticipated, even though it, it can be a slog at times. I think it still holds up pretty decent. And to think that this is honestly like one of the first, you could say, forerunners, forebearers of the genre. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that says a lot. It holds its place for sure. Okay, I'm glad you said first that it's a bit of a slog at times. I had a hard time paying attention at certain points in this movie. That said, in the end, it was a very enjoyable experience, and the actual reveal of what all went down <laughs> was way more complicated than I thought it was going to be. Uh, yeah, exactly. So that's why, I mean... Like, holy fuck more complicated than I thought it was going to be. Up yeah. to the point where, like, we're in the spoiler section now. That first kill they show isn't connected, right? No. No. Because <laughs> that first kill they show is the actual killer. 
Yeah, which I thought was clever, man, because the way this film plays out, you're expecting it to be one of there's I'd three say people. honestly three people, yeah, yeah, that it could be. It could be her husband. Mm-hmm. It could be Jean, her ex-lover and her new lover, or it could be George. George. Yeah, exactly. Or whatever other beetle. Yeah. <laughs> Ringo. <laughs> Paul, yeah. No, point being, yeah. It's clever how they do this. I will say there was a part of me that like once Jean popped in, who is like the way too obvious choice, I'm like, it's not him. By the way, he is involved. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but first off, he popped in and I'm like, he's way too obvious. And then I'm like, the name of this movie is The Strange Vice of Mrs. Ward. And I like started crossing my fingers. I'm like, maybe it's her. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Perhaps. That maybe that's the, what The Strange Vice is. No. Spoiler. You find not her. <laughs> no, spoiler, not her. We also find out what her Strange Vice is, which is all kinds of interesting coming from the time period and ah, the way that it portrays sexuality in this film Mm -hmm. and desires and taboo subjects like with blood and all that other stuff, you know? Now, I feel like most of this movie is pretty straightforward Mm -hmm. and there's not many sequences where it's like, this is supposed to mean something. Right. She does have some dream sequences and stuff, but even those I feel for the most part are straightforward. straightforward. Yeah. Her ones with Jean, second time through, I started questioning a little bit more. Like, now it's obviously when they were together, they were into some weird SM. I just mean weird in the sense that it, like, SM brings certain images to mind, and that's not what they were into. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. But I wonder, he was kind of made out to be like an abusive, controlling, domineering ex. And you see in her dream sequences some actual physical abuse do you think he actually was physically abusive or that was her dreams were more of a metaphor for the fact that they just had a toxic relationship where neither of them were good for each other Ooh, that's i could see that too you know i think this film also has a clever way and this is what Mm -hmm. you're talking about too has a clever way of talking about social aspects that are, are interwoven in this film but are probably more socially have to do with Italy and maybe Europe as a whole. But um, yeah, there's definitely that. I I could see that. And I'm not trying to like forgive him or give him an excuse. It was just something that popped to mind when I was going through it the second time. I'm like, are these flashbacks? Are these like, are these supposed to be literal or are these supposed to be mean something? Well, we've talked about this a couple of different times as well is she's going through all this different turmoil in terms of her mental state and her physical state and all this other stuff. So yeah. How much can you rely on her dreamlike states and her memories? Mm-hmm. Are they solid? Are they, uh, who knows? Are they fabricated? Is there some truth in those? Who knows? I think that's the interesting thing. There's ambiguity there. Well, cause her story through this is very much one of like, I mean, honestly, almost like a lifetime romance drama. Yeah, basically. She gets away from her toxic relationship and a possibly actually abusive ex-lover. Basically marries this dude on the rebound. Yeah. Because he's safe and they'll literally, he's a diplomat. They're literally getting out of the country and away from the guy. Right. 
but she feels unwanted by her current husband. And when she comes back, she starts a new affair from someone who actually wants her while then being stalked by the ex. Yeah. Like, if this is all there was to it, that's a lifetime drama, right? Oh, without a doubt. If that's all there was to it, yes. But that's not all there is to it. Mm-mm. Because then people start dying. Yes, and that's where this film gets really interesting because of all the kind of twists and turns you learn. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of why I feel like this film does hold up because it, it, at least it keeps you intrigued enough, even though it might not be the best way of you know telling a tale. It's still interesting. I wish it wasn't a little bit of a slog at points because I had a hard time paying attention to some of the details, even the second time through when I like knew those portions were going to be coming up and like tried to set my phone aside so that I could actually pay attention and shit. Do you feel like this movie gives enough info for you to put it all together? Not necessarily. That's kind of what I was thinking. No, that's why I think there is ambiguity. There's even some things I've listened to afterward that brings up some interesting points, too, which are more kind of like fan theories, mm. you know, but coming from one of the actors, I was like, that's interesting that they would say that because you could read into that a little bit. Okay, let's let's hold off on that. Yeah, I'm not, you'll bring it back it. up. We'll I'll see if it. we'll see if maybe we my land high on memories it. <laughs> sustain because there's. All right. There's a bit towards the end that I'm kind of curious about. Yeah, I'm kind of interested to see what you have to say, too. Yeah, I do feel like two-thirds of this movie, though, is pretty straightforward. Like, you're being told a story. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, before we get too far into it, I do have to ask a question. Mm -hmm. I think it's going to be more rhetorical, but for our audience, this is probably more pertinent information. Now, I have... The DVD version of this, although I would like the Blu-ray, but that's neither here nor there. But I would imagine that you watched this on Tubi. Yes. Because I did as well. I started to watch it on my DVD, you know, Blu-ray player or whatever. But something I noticed right off the bat, because I did watch Tubi the first time around. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, when I started in on the DVD this afternoon, there was not a major difference, but something I did note that is a difference in this version Compared to the Tubi version, which I think is a Blu-ray version of the film. Okay. Okay. So with that being said, the film opens up with the killer stalking and then getting hold of a prostitute. And, you know, she's taking off her clothes. And then he gets to doing his business. And there's a, a plane flying overhead. At least you hear the, the effects oh, yeah, of that, yeah, yeah. you know. And then anyhow, there's a cut in the DVD version after he kills her where there's a quote that comes up on the screen oh. and it's actually a Sigmund Freud quote. Okay. And I was like, huh, that's interesting because if you didn't watch that, it can make something different. It makes this film a little different in terms of its context, I think. So what's the quote? Actually, I wrote it down. I'm glad because it's like, you know, if I don't, I'm going to be kind of an asshole for even bringing this up. <laughs> All right. So I did write this down. So the quote is this. The very fact that the commandment says, do not kill, makes us aware and convinced that we are descended from an unbroken chain of generations of assassins for whom the love of murder was in their blood as it is perhaps in ours too. Hmm. Okay. 
So it's kind of going off of like, maybe this has always been in us, even mm-hmm. from the get go from the commandment. Mm-hmm. Okay. Interesting. I don't have enough time to process that over the course of the entire movie, but no, but I do feel like it would make the reading of some of the scenes a little bit different. That's kind of what I'm getting at too. So how much you want to read into that particular quote and how this film unfurls and what have you is one thing. And then the version that we watched, of course, doesn't have that. And I'm like, huh, I wonder whose decision that was. Was that the director's decision? Was that more of a production decision, you know, Mm -hmm. distributor who... All that other, you know, shit like that happens a lot. Like, for instance, this film has a whole different title depending on where the fuck you picked it up Right, because wasn't it released as Blade of the Ripper? Yeah, Blade of the Ripper and also Next Victim. And the reason I didn't read any of the freaking corny-ass taglines in this film is because most of them come from either one of those versions. I'm thinking it's probably the the latter one I gave you was the uh, Next Victim. Because oh. one of them is, heaven help whoever is, next. Oh, fuck. That's terrible. Yeah, and then it's, he's out there killing them one by one. <clears throat> Who is next? That's terrible, too. Right. Yeah, the other one is literally a line in the film. I'm not even going to spend my time reading it. The other one is, always unseen, unheard, until he reached out to touch and caress. That's a lot better for this flick. Right. But it's it like, still doesn't uh, fit that well. But it's better than those other ones. Yeah, exactly. Because I'm like, ah, oh, that's ah, oh, that's bad. That, <laughs> it's still, yeah, it's still not good. That's still more like insert generic Giallo tagline. I know, right? Exactly, dude. Or just put a name in the Giallo generator. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, oh, did you read the run times on those films too? No. What's so? There? Blade of the Ripper comes in at 83 minutes. Okay. And Next Victim comes in at 87 minutes. Now, the DVD version that I was going to watch this afternoon comes in at 136. And I think the runtime on Tubi, which is the Blu-ray version, is like 139. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and some change. But, yeah, pretty much 140. So, yeah, it depends on which version you watch. You get different runtimes. So I had the longest runtime, but they cut a quote. They cut a quote, yeah. And I was like, wow, that's interesting that they would do it right there at the beginning, too. And it's kind of weird how it comes up, too. Like, right after he it just kind of flashes on the screen, boom, 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 you know, and it's reading off the subtitle and all that shit. I would almost be interested in watching one of those shorter cuts just to see what exactly was all cut and see how it affects the pacing. Yeah, I know. That's but it'd probably make it make even less sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because as it is, like we said, minutes. I don't. they don't give you enough clues to put it all together. No, and that's why I they feel like they give you enough info so that it makes sense when you find out. Yeah. And I think that's where the second time through or maybe a third time through helps a little bit, not necessarily 100% helps out, but it doesn't hurt. Mm-hmm. There's little subtleties that you pick up on, but it's just not enough to like fill in the blanks 100%. That's what I'm getting at. Well, I mean, honestly, the first part of this movie is pretty easy to go over like she moves back, like we already said that. Her and Hubby move back, but yeah. he's always at work. She's meeting up with her friend. Yeah. Her friend introduces her to her cousin that she just found out she had because turns out an uncle that neither of them knew they had <laughs> just died and left them a shit ton of money. It wasn't an, an Uncle Joe? Yeah. <laughs> Joe Byron? 
So they inherited a fortune. And you're right. Carol introduces George, her cousin, to Julie. And they hit it off. But also, a little bit later on in the party, is John is there. Yes. And that sets Julie off. So she darts off. Because Carol's kind of a shit friend. Yeah, she kind of (laughs) is. You know, and there's some sexy stuff going on. There's like a couple of gals get called off and wearing paper dresses and they that get just fucking wild, right? Like, all, right, all right. This is what I was thinking. I'm not even joking, man. This is I this well, is it was kind of a swingers party anyway, right? It really was. So this is what it made me think of my youth and like where I mean now granted this is a film, but I think it's kinda indicative of the time too. All the shit that I ever did partying and with all my friends and all the other shit. It's like, yeah, there's some, you know, crazy shit that happens. But yeah. I'm like, I don't ever remember like that kind of shit happening. Where no comment, but <laughs> I'm not saying that I no, haven't not seen quite something. Like that, yeah, but... yeah, yeah, yeah. Where it was kind of like, no, but that was weird because like, uh, how okay. does somebody just like randomly tearing at some chick turn into two chicks having a sexy fight? That's kind of what I'm getting at. It's like, where the fuck have I been? Where have those parties been? Like, I've seen my fair share of stuff like close mm-hmm. to that but it was under di- different circumstances yes yeah. you know what i'm getting at <laughs> but that's the thing like if you're only paying attention yeah. to what's centered like and like the action it's kind of just like an upscale party <laughs> if you're paying attention to the background there's people like on the verge of getting it on all over the house yeah it was totally a swingers party sexy times man yeah europe 1970s <laughs> But it's still a little fucking weird that it just turns into, like, sexy romp. Right. And they just kind of dismiss it, and Julie goes outside. Especially because that chick actually did seem pissed off at first. Yeah. (laughs) And then it was like, okay, fuck, I'm naked. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And they went with it. Julie goes outside. She runs into John. They have their little confrontation. Her husband rolls up, winds up slapping the shit out of John, Mm -hmm. who just laughs it off. He's like, I don't know shit. Yeah, whatever, motherfucker. And well, then, he's into it, right? Well, you would imagine after the, some of the stuff we learn throughout. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like... That's like slapping It's my bread of butter. <laughs> it's my bread of butter, son. <laughs> yeah. That's that's what how... Yeah, it's like yeah, going up and right. Yeah, yeah. He's like, if you're going to do it, you better really lay into it. <laughs> Coming with me with that gangster little gangster shit. That didn't even make my dick twitch. I know. He's like, you barely made me even single. But Julie pretty much talks to her husband. I was like, you know, let's not do this. Okay. Oh, this That's is when where... she has the broken glass sex dream, right? Yeah. Yeah. Some of those sexy glass dreams and all this other sexy stuff starts to prop up. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> so th- that's one of the scenes where I'm talking about where if it's literal, they were into weird S&M that I've never seen before. Yeah, I'm like, you know. Because it would fit in the S&M category. Yeah. But sure. I don't think I don't I've know. ever seen... Two people intentionally have sex with broken glass in between them. Yeah, like so I'm sure it's a part of the community, and I'm I'm unaware of it. And this is, I don't know how early on or how far into it this is portrayed. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but it's interesting nonetheless. Was it as obvious to you as it was to me when the cut happened that turned it from real glass into sugar glass? Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you're not fooling me. But. Because they sprayed yeah. her with real glass, it looked like, in that very first bit. Or at least there was real glass flying through the air. And then when it lands on her, it's not even the same color anymore. 
cut. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but they do a pretty good job. Yeah, so we do at least get to see that, like her bloodlust, her little sexual deviancy or whatever. Well, and doesn't it start off like he slaps her down or something, or is that one of the other dreams? No, I think it's somewhere in there where he, she's kind of like getting slapped around and stuff, mm-hmm. and then, yeah, it's like raining and all that stuff happens in the woods, it looks like, yeah, where she starts to get into it. Like It, it looks like at first she's like, you know, portraying the, the female victim. Mm-hmm. But it turns out, that's not necessarily the case. Right. Well, it's somebody actually says a line way later in the movie. We keep just saying like she's into it, but like who is, it? is it Jean that says it or is it George that's figured it out that like she's equal parts repulsed and excited by blood? You know, I think I know John intimates a lot at that stuff. And it probably, but I think it might of, be George that says it straight out. You might be he, right. He I, figures it out at some point, I think. Yeah. I, a lot of these people are pretty on to what she's into and shit. Mm-hmm. They're not dumb. But because somebody says it straight, like she's equally excited and repulsed by blood. Solid point. I can't remember exactly who says that. I should have wrote that down. Damn. God damn it. <laughs> and that's what I actually wrote down. Like that's skipping quite a bit later into the movie. But like, is that the titular strange vice? <laughs> Very well could be, yeah. What I get out of this is we get a couple of really interesting moments. Like, for instance, we get one of the nude ladies from the party, one of the women who were wearing those paper dresses. And she, you know, she's back at her home taking a shower. She's all naked and all that good stuff. Now, this is a little bit of a, an homage, perhaps, a little nod to Hitchcock. Mm. You know, with the shower scene, mm-hmm. death, and all that stuff. So because that's the killer comes in, kills her, slashes her, all that good shit. And then I'm like, oh, okay. And then that's where one of those little stupid lines from earlier was like, I didn't want to really mention, but it's oh. basically, oh, did you notice the woman who got killed in the shower? I'm like, oh, fuck. Why is that a tagline? Because they're trying to play off Psycho. Yeah. it's like That's uh, the only reason you would make that as a tagline. I don't like that. Because so, these are proto-slashers. Yeah. And that, I mean, I understand it, but... Uh, now, you mentioned that. her getting it in the shower, when Mrs. Ward is first getting set up in her room, I accidentally skipped up. I couldn't read my own. Oh, that was like house. super early on, yeah, but still. I did notice just like that's when like the stylizing of this movie really hit me. And I'm like, yo, if nothing else, this is a fucking beautifully shot film. Cause her just like getting settled into her apartment felt almost like Kubrickian. Yeah. It kind of reminded me of some of the bits of the shining and shit. Like that's a solid way of looking at that. I think because... And of, not even yeah. in a creepy way, but just no, like an just, appreciating the setting sort of way. From what I understood, and they mentioned this too, in that little behind the scenes, what have you, is a lot of these sets were like real sets, so they didn't have mm. to like decorate them. They just found a location and they could film. And they found some fucking dope places. Right, and so that's probably why they had the benefit of shooting what they could shoot and... Just taking advantage of all that stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm like, damn. From what I understood, the only thing that they had to shoot that was a part of a um, set or in a studio was like an interior of, I think, George's home. They okay. shot that scene from like a, some kind of interior shot or interior scene from um, some Western mm. that looked kind of similar to what they already established earlier in the film. Okay. And that, that was something that had to do with production. But anyhow, I was like, that's... They talked about it. It was like, you know, if you look, they shot in Vienna for a lot of the, the film. Then they also shot in Sitges in Spain. Mm-hmm. So they're like, 
Well, we just took advantage of the fact that we shot in these locations. <laughs> Ooh, actually, that brings me up to one other giallo trope. If the movie isn't actually set in Italy, you can't actually guess where they're at, and you have to go by what they say. Because mm -hmm. there's no way I could have told you that was Vienna. Nobody's fucking accent matched up. There's so much dubbing going on. Because <laughs> there's so many. Like I mentioned earlier, because you have so many different productions, mm -hmm. companies, and all this other stuff, distributors, that you have all these different actors and actresses from all these different other countries, and they're not all speaking the same language on set. The only Giallis that you know exactly where they're set by how they're saying things are the ones that are actually set in Italy. Oh, 100%. Otherwise, yeah, you're taking a stab in the dark, and that's not a Giallo film I'm talking about. I'm just saying that's like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? This is what happens, but <laughs> yeah, that's where they film this, man, and I was like, that's that's interesting. But they do make mention that it is in Vienna, so... Mm -hmm. You know, and a number of times. They also make mention, too, you know, later on that they're going to Spain. So, I mean, they do establish that, at least mm -hmm. in the film. But regardless, I was like, damn, those are some nice fucking sets and scenes. Anyway. That's when I first noticed it, and I had to write it down, but the entire movie shot that lovingly. Uh, yeah. And, man, they, they make... And it's not like you said earlier. It's not like scenery porn or whatnot it's just the fact that they have these locations yeah they stylize it but they don't like overdo it mm -hmm. they just it, they just make sure that you know oh yeah this is what it is uh and not only that because that's one of those things is like it's going to be hard to recreate any of that stuff just because of the time period it was shot in the luxury that they had that they didn't have to like I said decorate all those sets and all that other stuff so yeah good luck with that today and the costs associated with that so this first kill though is the actual killer right oh i think from the get-go well the prostitute, the prostitute yeah. one but then this one as well right like the chick oh, from the party yeah those are both the actual killer yes yes who is not related to who is actually hunting her later mm -mm. Mm -mm. Uh, this is which we learn much later on so this is confusing anybody this is pure coincidence that there's an actual serial killer in Vienna while Julie's dealing with her little love tryst and all this shit mm -hmm. that makes it appear that she's caught up also in this serial killer game. The coincidence comes like striking somebody as, I was just at that party. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A lot of and it just John happens was there. Are coincidental. Yeah. And he's a fucking freako. Yeah, it's I just, know, because I used to do freak out shit with him. It's coincidental, some of it, and it's just happenstance, and the people in the circles they run in, here you go. It's happenstance that works in her opposition's favor. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, her, George is trying to get it real hard. Uh, yeah, he is, and it's working, actually. He has a line, man, this motherfucker. Uh, did you write down the same uh, one yeah, that I wrote? I did, the, probably. My specialty is courting women in front of their husbands. Did you write that shit down, oh, too? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He let it be known. And then, you know, sexy time I was like, this is. motherfucker's smooth as shit. They go on a motorcycle ride, which is kind of what I was getting at earlier mm. or intimating at, was the way they established some of the scenes on the countryside and some of the castle and all that other stuff that they show you in Austria and, and you know, all this other shit. But I also like the way that they score it as well mm. because I think that's what helps kind of I don't know, give it a little bit different magnitude because without that score, it would just be like, ah, this was a cool shots. Score. But yeah, it's, it's kind of, I don't know. It's kind of a sweeping score. Mm -hmm. I won't say epic. That's probably overplayed, but it, 
it gives it a nice feel, a very interesting feel. So far, Italy in general tends to like knock it out of the park with scores. I would actually go back and listen to. Maybe, like, I would go back and listen to this score. I was gonna say maybe a little cliche too, but it almost feels a little operatic, mm-hmm. like soap opera attic, <laughs> but <laughs> but you know not as melodramatic. It just yeah, like I said, more of a sweeping score, so to speak. But I really like that man. That's like for me, it's, it kind of solidifies a good giallo too. Is those scores. Yeah, they have that fucking motorbike ride. Oh, yeah, then they make love, but also the killer, the stalker, is watching as well, coincidentally enough. And this sets up some interesting shit right here as well, because... Well, that uh, shot is good enough to see that it's for sure Jean that time? Yeah, 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 yeah. 100%. Yes, 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 yes. So that's what I'm saying. It can be confusing because of... All that other background stuff that's happening with the serial killer. Mm-hmm. But in this case, yes, it's John. Because what she gets now is literally a fucking note from him, which states, Now I know you're trying to get away from me, but your vice is like a room locked from the inside, and only I have the key. It's like, I can get your motor running, girl. And then somebody, <laughs> somebody, which I'm sure it was the writer who's worked with fucking Martino a lot. But I'm sure somebody's like, oh, God damn, we got a fucking Giallo title in this little note. God damn. Because, <laughs> I mean, Vice look. is a locked room and only I have the key. Is maybe Hello. the best Giallo title of all time. Yeah, I own that. I've, I've watched it. No, that's neither here nor there. But, yes. I'm like, shit, that's where that comes from. <laughs> they use it. Brilliant. All right. Here's something interesting to, because she receives a phone call. And it's a disguised phone call. The voice, that is. And, you know, they want some money because they know of her affair with George and they call him out by his full name. Mm-hmm. And it'd be ashamed if he got back to, you know, the diplomat's office and all this shit. So she's supposed to meet somebody, the killer, it appears to be at the uh, Palman house, right? And she goes and meets Carol. She tells Carol what's going on. And Carol's like, you know, kind of giving her some sage advice a little bit. She's like, you know, if you knew who the killer was or if they if you didn't know them they wouldn't have to disguise their voice so apparently it's John yeah she's like I'll go in your place cause I'm gonna have fun telling them off yeah <laughs> and so she goes she goes in her place and uh like damn Carol's rocking a hot body god damn yeah. someone's grandma I'm all these grandmas running around here <laughs> gee best crease too <laughs> anyway well, anyway the whole establishing shot is like the, is really, the famous one I was about Carol to be honest I was like whew Yes. Yeah, I'm not I'm not hating either. All these ladies are looking nice. Anyhow, that's another thing about this genre. It's like, yes. Yeah. If Giallo's just started as a genre today, they would cast only CW stars and insta models for their women. Almost like you said if they started Tate's. <laughs> Tate's. Tate. Yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah. No, Carol, unfortunately, she starts to hear shit the further and further she gets into the park. It's also closing down, coincidentally enough, as well. She runs into a couple like groundskeepers. Point her in the direction where she's looking for, you know, the person for the drop and all that stuff. Unfortunately for her, it turns into the killer. Mm-hmm. So she gets whacked. She's done for, unfortunately. And um, because of that, 
it sets off uh, Julie thinking that it might be Jean because she accuses him at the commissioner's office and he happens to have an alibi. Airtight alibi. Apparently. <laughs> they don't say what it is. He just, he for sure wasn't there. He's across town doing something or another. But yeah, I'm like, okay. Now, second time through, this is where it made me think if you're really paying attention, it's kind of giving you a little bit of a clue here where this is a more than a one-person job. And that's when after everybody has their little encounter, George to even Neil at the commissioner's office, mm-hmm. right? Julie goes back to her place. Yeah. But she's in the parking garage, the deck, right? Lights go off, and all those lights start to go off in the, in the garage. And then the car speeds off. She freaks out, goes to the elevator. As she's waiting on it, that's when the killer comes out. Now, that's when I was like, okay, now this is turning into, like, more than a one-man job. Do you think that this was an inspiration on Scream at all? I could see that. Because it's like... there it doesn't necessarily have... You know, multiple killers no, doesn't have to be an inspiration to Scream. No, but, but I, I think it's... I don't think it's a coincidence either. Because this is kind of a plot device a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, with Giallo's. Not, you know, wholeheartedly, but... I was like, man, if you're really paying attention... Somebody either got spooked off while they were down there, and then coincidentally enough, that fucking guy just pops out. Or it was staged. Like, right. We're setting you up with a scare down here, even though we know the dude's about to drop down on you. Mm-hmm. Set you up for that classic psych out, two-man job, or at least at least a two-man job. But that second man sucks. Yeah. <laughs> and doesn't get the job done. No, he doesn't, yeah. <laughs> which we find out, which is kind of... Because that wasn't supposed to be just a scare. That was supposed to be a kill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was supposed to get it right there and there, but she makes it upstairs. You could say funnily or whatever, maybe a little bit of a gag where the guy's coming up the stairs and he's like, yeah, that elevator. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, yeah, she makes it back inside. You know, she's talking to her, her husband about all the shit that's transpiring, but she's convinced that it's John, right, doing all this stuff. And she just wants to get away. And then Neil winds up convincing her to take him to John's place, right? They're going to kind of settle the score. So they go over there. They have a look around. While they're having that look around, they run into John's body in the bathtub that appears to be blood-filled. Right. Okay. That's kind of a clue that is interesting that comes up a little bit later on, right? At first, just you write it off as... Guy off himself in the fucking tub. <laughs> All right? Whatever. No big deal. I mean, big deal, but whatever. All right. They go back outside. John's car is gone. That freaks her out a little bit. When she goes into Neil's car, her husband's car, he finds the bouquet of flowers and the note in the back seat. And the note reads, because they wanted to know too much, Adam and Eve were kicked out of paradise. We skip something important. Okay. Because finding out that... The real killer died happens before they find the dead Jean. Right? I think this is like right before that guy gets killed. It's almost oh. like coincidentally at the same time, almost. Okay. Yeah, yeah. They're about to find that out, but like right after this transpires, that's when it goes to the razor killer picking up or going after his next victim. Mm. And then that's when he gets offed. So it's kind oh, of okay. it's just kind oh, of coincidentally okay. going it. on yeah, at the yeah, same yeah. time. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Because yeah, because next thing you know is um, George is pretty much want her to get away with him to Spain. Yes. Yeah, and then she once again receives a bouquet of flowers once they're established in Spain, 
turns out to be from John. Again, because it says, seeing that the living don't bring flowers to the dead, the dead bring them to the living. And it's signed off as John. Mm-hmm. And that freaks her out. Now, this is actually where I was like, okay, you don't have to necessarily like her as an actress, but this is where I like her as a person. <laughs> because, all right, A, I was like, I like her endurance because, yeah, she's running. It's kind of sloppy. But she makes it all the way from where she's going to where she almost gets speared. Right. <laughs> Then she takes off again, and then it's like, on top of it, she gets in a stick shift, and she's driving that bitch left-handed. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, that's pretty impressive, given this, you know, her character. But I was like, that's not her character. That's actually her doing that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, that's pretty smooth. So she's got style on top of it. So anyway, she makes it back to her place. She faints after she sees that rusty water. Yeah. Yeah, that sets her off. Sets her off. She starts to have those flashbacks of Carol laughing. She sees Mm -hmm. John and George, and then George has the slit throat, and he's slapping her around. Yeah, then George comes in, and she faints, passes out. All right. He tries to wake her up, does all that shit. He winds up calling the doctor, or he gets advice to call up Dr. Arbe Mm -hmm. after she goes in that state of shock and all this other stuff. And so he does. He reaches out. Tells a guy, he's like, you know, it's an emergency, what have you. Kind of goes a little bit into detail about what's going on on the phone. While that's happening, while George goes off to get Dr. Arbe, Jean comes in. He sneaks in because she awakens. He puts the rag over her mouth. Right. Oh, yeah. Knocks her ass back out, drags her into the kitchen, seals everything on the inside, like the windows and Mm -hmm. all that stuff, turns on the gas, right? And leaves her. Leaves her. The only time I think I've ever seen this, I doubt we'll ever see this again, is the ice cube trick. And I don't know if it was like if it was even necessary, but it was kind of neat. Because <laughs> it's like, what the fuck is he doing? Why is he going through all these links? And I was like, oh, it's kind of interesting because that's probably, like I said, the only time we'll ever see this shit. It's mm-hmm. so with that little lock, the way it, it, it does it with the ice, it worked for him. <laughs> right? That's how he makes his getaway. <laughs> you know, anyway, it appears like that. Okay, she's fine. That's it. She's fucked. This is kind of what I like, too, is with the sound design. I don't know if you picked up on this. Is after all that shit transpires with her and John, and John's making his escape, and then as George and Dr. Arbe are driving back, the sound just kind of goes out. Yeah. It's just kind of like a low hum the entire time until they reach her inside the home, and then the sound kind of comes back on. Mm. Everything else gets kind of muted up to that point. I was like, that was an interesting choice okay, of sound design. I don't design. think I noticed that. Yeah. I noticed that, I think, the second time. I mean, I noticed it the first time through, but I really paid attention to it mm. when I was taking my notes for this because it's like, damn, that was kind of interesting. It reminded me a little bit of some of the sound design in Hereditary. Not all, you know, but just that low hum. Mm-hmm. I'm like, damn, that's kind of interesting because it does set up like this sense of urgency and unawareness and probably what she's experiencing that just kind of fading out (laughs) that hum right 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 but they reach her in time you know get her the doctor yeah and at this point it's pronounced that she died unfortunately she's pronounced dead and they're ruling it declared a suicide Mm -hmm. because you know everything was from the inside sealed off there was gas. I mean, uh, what do you, I mean. Yeah. Was it, what else is it going to be? There was no struggle. Yeah. So anyhow, um, this is where it gets interesting. 
with how this movie unfurls from here because John and George have a meetup. Right. Well, first off, like she's been the main character. Now she's been announced dead. Now she's done. And you're like, and you're suddenly following her fucking boy toys. Yeah. What is up with these dudes now? Right. And like I said, they have a meeting. And this is where kind of gets back to what I was saying earlier with the fan theory and what an Ooh. actor said about the fan theory after going back and watching it and thinking about it is George and John, their relationship. Okay. All right. Well, it's kind of established how, how they are trying to do this because I think, is it George who intimates about the serial killer and the coincidental shit that's going on with this? Or Jean was mentioning that like it happened to be like a good time to be doing all this shit under the guise of the serial killer. Like our little mm-hmm. trying to get rid of her <laughs> using because, that as a cover. Yeah. We can use that as a cover. Right. And this is where Edward Fennick actually was talking about this. She's like, you know, so because there's ambiguity in this film, she's like, I didn't really think about it this way. She's like, but there's perhaps a homosexual relationship between those two guys, mm. you know, because it seems like George is just kind of playing her. Mm-hmm. I mean, he needed to get his cousin out of the way, which we learn, right? Because they both got this fucking inheritance from an, an unlikely source, an uncle they had never met in Australia, right? So Carol gets off. Now they need to get rid of Julie, which George is kind of doing a favor for Neil and for John. Well, would it be George and John that were in the relationship or John and Neil since they were That's the interesting too. one or George and Neil because John was just hired so that the, cause the, the ultimate plan is between George and Neil. Yeah. And John was just, a pawn in that. Uh, yeah, in their scheme. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm There's like double crosses. <laughs> there's a coincidental thing too with the fact that Jean photographed the killer. Mm. Because when, <laughs> I know we're jumping around a lot, but when Neil goes into the home with um, with Julie, they find the camera. Right, and it, the picture gets developed later. And it's like, a fucking oh, it killer. To, mm-hmm. I mean, the real killer. It's not fucking Jean. So it's like, oh, is that a mere coincidence, too, that he just so happened to snap that photo of that motherfucker? Mm. <laughs> you know? It's like there's some interesting shit going on there, too, with that dynamic. Like, so how much of this is just coincidental? See, so the thing I was going to sort of get to towards the end of the movie, because there's a weird bit. Okay, we kind of skipped over it, but That's okay. George meets with John. You find out, like we said, Jean is just a pawn. Yeah. George kills Jean and stages that to look like suicide. Yeah, not only that, but it changes his name to like Jean McDonald from Canada. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's kind of like, yeah, covers his fucking whole bases, covers their tracks. It, it at least appears. So he was able to change it to Jean McDonald from Canada, right? Mm-hmm. Which means he probably has some sort of international connections in a way. Yeah, that's what it appears. Julie made the crack at Neil earlier that it seems like diplomats only love other diplomats or something like that. Only woo or whatever. Only court other diplomats or something. So is it? Is it Neil and George together? Maybe that line that he said to her about he likes to court ladies in front of their husbands. Maybe it was the inverse. Mm. Maybe that's why he needed him around is so that he could woo Neil in front of her. <laughs> you know what I'm saying, yeah. Maybe you said that shit on the sly. 
But the part where I was like, this is just fucking weird, is when George and Neil are then in the car together, and George just starts doing the fucking winding back and forth all over the road, and that's where my, like, I didn't yeah. think you were going to go with they were in a homosexual relationship idea. I was like, did they maybe actually kill her? And this is them at the end, not actually swerving all over the road, but just now they're too cocky because they're, they, they did it. Right. Which is, you know, that plays into what actually goes on, you know, as shown by the movie. But then like, there's the weirdness of she's just on the edge of the road. And like, why does she have to be on the edge (laughs) of the road if the cops are following them to begin with? And like, yeah. So they do the backup and like, what if she wasn't there? That's just her ghost and their sense of guilt, Guilt, almost tripping them up. Cause with the police on their tail, they trip up and accidentally kill themselves. <laughs> yeah, no, right? Fucking wise So how guys. much of all of that is just potentially just like a metaphor for what happened? You like know, they got cocky that's afterwards. Too. That's good too. So they're swerving all over the road. Maybe that's them. They got drunk at a fucking bar and were just talking out loud about what the fuck they were talking about. And that allowed the, the yeah. police to get a lead on them. I could see that too. I absolutely could see that because this film even though it feels linear in a lot of ways. The dream sequences and shit earlier set it up so it doesn't have to be linear. Precisely. And I think that's the brilliance is this subgenre is known for its style over substance as well. So, (laughs) you know, it's not always going to be something that's easy to digest. And there is... I'm going to say right now, there's no evidence to back this up in the movie, but in the slightly more linear read where she is alive at the end with the doctor in the movie is the strange vice of Mrs. Ward. And we know that she is equally repulsed and excited by blood. Did they all fit into her schemes to, for her to end up with the doctor? I mean, it very well could be. That's what I'm saying. This film it gives you just enough, but doesn't fill in all the blanks mm-hmm. because there is a lot of open-endedness with her, with a lot of these other characters too, that are kind of like his character was really introduced real quick and briefly. Dr. Arbe, that is. Yeah. Right. So how do they establish I didn't this even relationship? Rec- I didn't even remember who the fuck he was at How the much end. time had elapsed between her supposed death and, you know, George and Neil driving off on their death? Right. How much time had elapsed for her to develop a relationship with that guy? Because the movie makes it out to be a day. Yeah, and it was like he was, or she was his best patient. It was like, how? Yeah. That's kind of what I'm saying. It's like, uh, this that doesn't make much sense. But it doesn't really have to. And I think that's where these conversations, it makes it fun, makes it relevant. <laughs> for some people, it might make it worse. Yeah, and, and I, I, get I get that. Yes, likewise. Some people need closure, and I completely understand that. I think this film does enough to where you, you can get closure if you want it. You just take the, the more yeah. linear read. Right. She take gets it. a happy ending. Even right. And like, right. Even though, yeah, all these guys are trying to offer. Mm-hmm. She gets her quote-unquote revenge on them in the end, and she potentially meets a doctor who gets her mm-hmm. and her fetish, potentially. But if you're... <laughs> If you're trying to read between the lines, there's a lot of these characters that are saying that she is basically the same as Jean in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah exactly. 
there's a lot of interesting things that... <laughs> and he's an obvious creepo. So there's a lot of things that you can really, really read into. And you're not necessarily wrong or right. It's just, it's interesting conversation, regardless, man. And I like that. I like that about these films. And honestly... This movie does mostly back up the more linear read, though. It, I think it does. <laughs> I honestly think it does. But I do like those open-ended conversations where it, mm-hmm. it trails off enough to where you can pick up those loose threads and just kind of maybe maybe this, maybe that. Because otherwise, like, intention. I'm going to fucking fuck around in this oh, car. Oh, God. You know, that that's okay. I think that's it's fun to think about that kind of stuff in these films. Like, the potential that it could have or the implications that it could have with these characters mm-hmm. and all. You know, but that's, you know, I, who knows if that was the intent anyway. It's just like, fuck it, man. I, we got to wrap this up somehow. <laughs> you know, well, and this then, is the best oh, way we can man. do it. Now that you have me on the what if they were in a relationship angle, like, <laughs> like the other time we see George take someone for a drive, it's once again him making an intentionally scary ride to bring her closer, and then they cap it off by having sex. He's fucking in here celebrating with this dude, and now he's like, cool, now I'm going to swerve all over the fucking road and get you all freaked out for a second, but I'm also making sure that we're bumping fucking into each other all the time. I don't know. There's intimations there. I'm mm-hmm. saying it's, it's interesting, man. It's interesting to even think that, that she said that, that perhaps that you can read into that kind of stuff. You know, it's just like I'd, I'd have to go back again and watch it just to, but I like that those conversations come up, mm-hmm. you know? I agree. And she was in the fucking movie, so that's what I'm getting at. All right, there's just a few things, and my few, I mean, like, two things of note, and I've already kind of, t- we both kind of talked about it anyhow, is how George Hilton, now, he was born in Uruguay to British parents. Mm-hmm. Okay, hence why his name is fucking George Hilton. <laughs> 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 but, uh, he went to like acting school and stuff and Montevideo is where he grew up. Then he moved to Buenos Aires. Did a lot of stage and whatnot. And he said, uh, he didn't get into details. He said something emotional happened and he moved to Rome. And he said, you know, he got with an agent. He was doing like little bit parts here and there in mm-hmm. Westerns. And then he landed that role and then that Lucio Fulci film, I already mentioned earlier, Massacre Time. He played this drunkard. And he got some, you know, some fame because of that, because of the other guys he starred opposite that launched his career in the Spaghetti Westerns, yada, yada. Now, Edwitt Finnick, I've already mentioned too, she was on the, the film. It's called The Sins of Madame Bovary. Now, Lucio Martino was an associate producer at the time. And she said that, you know, they met each other, just kind of like small talk. Hey, how's it going? Mm-hmm. What have you. And she said, after that film finished wrapping, it got in the hands of an Italian editors, and they needed a couple of scenes reshot, you know, for editing purposes. And who was responsible for the reshoots? It was none other than Sergio Martino, mm. right? And and there was like two particular scenes, but she said that this is when she knew that directors could be sadistic, because she's like, yeah, I was only wearing like a night gown or a nightshirt or whatever running around the woods and he had me screaming and it was raining and it was cold and he's like just kind of getting off on it <laughs> you know she's like yeah that's when I knew like you know directors can be sadistic and this led her into these roles and all this other stuff which is really interesting this is how she got the job and she was actually partners with uh, Luciano for she had quite a while for like seven or eight years yeah so that, you know, it started this whole kind of interesting relationship 
between the Martino family, her, George Hilton. Well, I was going to say, Hilton was married to one of Martino's cousins. So there you go, dude. That's what I'm saying. It, <laughs> it became a family affair, coincidentally enough. There's a reason why you start seeing these people work together. Even guy who plays Jean, Ivan Razumov, mm-hmm. he went on to uh, do All the Colors of the Dark and some others. So, I mean, he's pretty obvious when you see him and shit like that. So it's kind of neat to know, too, once again, that because the Western, like the spaghetti Westerns, weren't, it wasn't necessarily dying out, but it was kind of kind of getting stale, mm-hmm. you know, and people were kind of getting to thrillers. And that's where he noticed that. And this is Sergio, that is. He said he started noticing that trend and he struck up a relationship with some of these writers and they went for it. And this film had success, you know, and it wasn't like a huge budget. They just mm-hmm. happened to get these really cool sets and shit. We've already talked about it at nauseum. But, you know, with him, Argento, I mean, most people think of him, Fulci, whole different style. <laughs> uh, Umberto Lenzi, Mario Bava, like, you know, we could be listing names and names and names. But for me, he's like one of the godfathers of this, this subgenre. And this is just kind of a, a little taste for him. I mean, this is his first foray into the genre, mm-hmm. too. And I think that this is like, you know, kind of one of those foundational films. I think it says a lot, even though we've kind of talked about its flaws. But we're kind of viewing it from a 50 plus year lens. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was thinking of what it kind of meant probably for that audience in 1971 who saw this compared to some of the films they'd probably seen up to that point. Like this was probably a little shocking. Some of the sexy and some of the kills and mm-hmm. the twists and shit. And it was probably a little confusing on top of it, like a little bit of a head fuck, <laughs> you know? Well, I know like even after the reveal at the end, the first time through, it took the actual watching of the second time to put it together that, like, oh, these first two kills aren't even connected. That's what I'm getting at. Like, you could just easily write it off as, yeah, it's John doing the killings or whoever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or, like, one of the other guys. No, I really fucking dug this. This yeah, was well, cool. That's awesome, man. Yeah, because it's been a while since we've uh, dabbled our toes in this genre. So, For as much as I tuned out, I actually did like it. <laughs> yeah. No, it, 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 it kind of sparked my interest again because... Um, you know, I mentioned earlier, I had the intent of watching some of the other films in the subgenre, but I'll get around to it, man. There's so much other mm-hmm. shit I need to watch right now. Speaking of watching other shit, we don't have next week planned. <laughs> no. <either. laughs> this is like a common refrain, and I'm okay with that because it leads to films like this and others. Every and once in a while we have it planned. That happens, too. That happens as well. Every I'm not saying then. that we don't. I'm just Every now and then we have like an entire month planned. Which, that's, it's fun. It's fun, when, and I'm sure that'll happen soon again, but... For this time, we don't have one lined up. So we're going to figure that out. It's not going to be Giallo because we just did that. (laughs) Yeah, sorry. (laughs) If you're expecting your vice is locked room and only I have the key, not today. Not today. Yeah. Not Not tomorrow. Not next week either. That's right. (laughs) Oh, shit. There was one thing I wanted to mention real quick before we're completely off this because I don't think we mentioned it during the Carrie episode. Now that I've seen more from Giallos, how much all of Brian De Palma's movies just are Giallo references oh, with dude. the way he shoots his movies. Dude, huge influence. I mean, we've talked about Eli Roth, Quentin Tarantino. It's pretty obvious. Yeah, Kill Bill Volume 2 is a Giallo when it's not being Kung Fu or Spaghetti Western. I just, come on. <laughs> okay, now we're going to go figure out what the fuck we're going to do next week. We hope you guys enjoy it. I'm Tyler. I'm Danny. Fried Squirms, out. out.
Hi, everybody. Tyler here. If you like the podcast, please hit subscribe however you're listening to us right now. Also, if you could rate and review us however you're listening to us, or preferably over on Apple Podcasts, that'd be super cool as the entire world is ran on algorithms and we want to be all up in them. Uh, We highly appreciate it whenever you tell all your friends about us. If you have any suggestions, comments, questions, want us to put eyes on your current independent horror project, you can always contact us, squirmcast at gmail.com, or you can contact us through our website, www.friedsquirms.com. Scroll through our entire back catalog there, or click the links up at the top, as we are part of the Earverm Podcast Network, uh, and would love it if you went and checked out some of our sister shows. Uh, The easiest way to keep track of things across the entire network is to go over to that website. That's earverm.com, E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M.com. You can search for us across all the social medias. If you type in Fried Squirms, we should be what pops up. I'm not going to give you all those ats. So with all of that in mind, we'd love to hear from you. Until next time, peace.